Well, hello, church. If you would open to John 19. John 19, we will be in verse, no surprise, 25 through 27. Once more. Uh, This is our third and final week in this little section before we move on. Let's read this again. The context is Jesus is on the cross at this point, hanging on the cross of Golgotha. And it says in verse 25, But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cloopus and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved, Standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Father, this is your word, Lord. Your word. God breathed. Sharper than a two-edged sword. Able to change us at the level of our soul, our heart, our mind. And we pray You do that. We trust that You can. We pray You would. We pray You would, Lord. Change us, not just any way, Lord, but we pray that you You would change us and make us more like Your Son, Jesus Christ. This is the great purpose for which you sent your Holy Spirit to your church. And so we pray that you would make us like your son and use this section of scripture today toward that end. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, let me kind of help us understand the the way that we're going to move through the holiday uh, season when it comes to preaching. Uh, This week and then next week we will be in the Gospel of John. And then uh, we will leave the Gospel of John for five weeks. And we will do a five-week Advent series uh, leading up to the Incarnation. So uh, overviewing the whole Old Testament uh, until the Incarnation. So if you're like, man, we're just really zoomed into this crucifixion narrative right now. I wish we would broaden a little bit. You'll like the Advent series. Overview the whole Old Testament in five weeks. Um, all right, so today I want to linger here, though, in this passage. And I, re- I really want us to, to view what we're doing here, as I said last week, as drawing things out of the text that are really there. Not bringing things into the text that are not there. And you be the judge, you test these things that, that we're saying, and I want to review a few of them just so that we can make sure we're making these connections that uh, I believe are to be drawn out of this text. So, you know, it's one thing, it would be significant if Jesus has a Bible study, and in that Bible study, uh, there's five disciples, and four of those are women. That would be significant. But here's Jesus on the cross. All the other disciples have left him. And there's five disciples with him. Four of those are women. That's significant. We took a week on that. Um, Because 
It is our uh, day in which we live with progressive feminism that, that says they're exalting womanhood, says they're giving us a better version of womanhood, strong womanhood, and what I tried to remind us of, of these four women at the cross, that's strong womanhood. Not giving in to their fears and concerns and worries, but uh, not even just uh, doing really well at domestic duties. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that they can handle their emotions and they can bring all of that to Christ. And we see these four women displaying a type of strength in their femininity. And we talked about Mariology, uh, the veneration and worship of Mary. And the reason we did that uh, is because Catholic theologians for hundreds of years have pointed to this text that we're studying and said, this is why Mary should not just be viewed as a woman, but as the mother of the church, as the mother of heaven. And they'll point to this text. And so I gave eight reasons why we don't believe that Mary is to be considered the mother of heaven or the mother of the church. And um, I, had a, I think I had three people come up to me after that uh, sermon a few weeks ago and say that you were raised being taught to pray to Mary. As the mediatrix is the technical word, uh, the mediator, the female mediator in heaven that we are to pray to. This is really taught to millions of people and they use this passage to justify that. And we looked at last week uh, that Jesus is not procrastinating when he looks down at his mother at this point and says, uh, John, behold your mother. And he passes off his mother to John. He's not, it's not that he's going, oh no, I, I should have handled this a few weeks ago and I, I'm just remembering and he tries to handle it. This is not, Christ doesn't procrastinate. He orchestrates. Everything is pre-planned. Everything was ordained not a few weeks or months out. Before the foundation of the world, these things were decided. He's not procrastinating. He's trying to show us something. He's trying to show us what humility looks like. It looks like even in your worst moment of pain, you're still considering others more significant than yourself. And so he's thinking about his father. He's thinking about the bride that he is to purchase with his own blood. He's thinking about even his enemies and loving them. He's, for the joy set before him, he's enduring all of these things. And somehow he still is able to look down at his best friend John. He's able to look down at his mother Mary and love them very intentionally. And guys, it's one thing to be able to read a verse like, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 that says, love is the greatest. It says, uh, you can have all these things, all knowledge, you can have all faith to move mountains, but if you have not love, you have nothing. It's one thing to read that verse. It's, it's one thing to read that we should love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. It's another thing to begin to see that demonstrated, practically, by Christ himself. Jesus isn't giving us a theological teaching from the cross on the doctrine of love. He's displaying the doctrine of love in his own life, with his own words, in his own family, in friend circles. Here, here's maybe a, a best, uh, the best way to say this. Jesus was so heavenly minded, 
He could be earthly good. Which is the opposite of what many people are saying in our days. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're not any earthly good. Says many, many people. Jesus flips that on its head. And he's so heavenly minded that he is able to be earthly good. I would argue his Godward vision is what enabled him to love people so intentionally. It was his Godward vision. Um, This is why I'm very much against, and and I think we all should be very much against, a type of man-centeredness that can even look Christianized. What do I mean by that? Well, our lives are about loving one another. Our lives are about ministry. Our lives are about missions and evangelism. Our lives are about family and wives and loving our wives and loving our kids. No, they're not. Our lives are first and foremost about God. It's not people, 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 people. It's God first and then neighbor. And when God is first and we exalt God and have a Godward vision of all things, love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you don't neglect to love your neighbor. It, it, it doesn't, God didn't set up the law, the first and second table of the law this way. And we know this because of Jesus. So you go, how do we know that if I love God with all of my everything in me that I won't just neglect all these people I'm supposed to love. How do I know that that's true, Pastor? Jesus. It's how you know that that's true. He said, everything I do is for the glory of the Father, yet He's the most loving man to ever live. Do you realize that? Think think about that. He, He aimed all of His heart, soul, mind, and strength, obeyed that Greatest commandment to love God with all of Him and yet never neglected to love someone. He actually loved all the people in His life perfectly. And this is very instructive to us and how to order our lives. You know, when we see a verse in Ephesians 5.1, for example, where it tells us, be imitators of God. That's the command. Be imitators of God. And you go, how am I supposed to imitate God? God's in heaven. He's God. How do you imitate God? You imitate Jesus Christ. Who was the image of God. Perfectly personifying the very nature of God. In everything He did. That's how we imitate God. And Jesus is showing us what this looks like. There was a... Uh, there was a brother who, was, uh, who said this on Wednesday in our city group. It was actually a visitor that came to our group that was not normally there. But he said, uh, Christ was present in the pain. That's the way he said it. That's better than my title from last week, whatever I titled the sermon. Christ was present in the pain. He's not teaching. He's not commanding from the cross, guys, be present in the pain. He's not teaching. He's demonstrating what it looks like to be in the worst moment of your life. And yet you're still present. You're still intentional. You're still mindful of others' needs. And you're not swallowed up in a type of self-pity wondering who will care for you. 
Here, here's the way I, I was talking about it this week with someone. That Jesus compartmentalizes. If we could say it this way. Jesus is compartmentalizing. What do I mean by that? I mean He's on the cross to die for the sins of the world. He literally has the world on His shoulders at this moment. And somehow He's able to compartmentalize, not forget about that, but push it aside enough so to then look down at Mary and John and the criminal and these other things and deal with the things right in front of Him. That's very instructive to us in our lives. That's very helpful to us in our lives. I think about you brothers who go to work and uh, just the stress, the toil of work. We, do rem- we should remember there's a curse on work. You go, I don't like my job. I don't like what I do. It's hard. It's cursed. By the sweat of your fa- face, you shall work. Right? We have a curse. And so when you come home from work and then your little kids are crawling on your legs at your feet and your wife is tired and there's a need for spiritual leadership in your family. Are we able to to not forget all the things that we have to do with work, but put it aside to love those that are in our lives? This is very instructive for us as men. You ladies, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult it is to be a mother at home with the kids all the time. Lord bless you. It's very difficult. I'm sure some days you love it. And then other days, mentally, you're not in a good place. And you're tempted, at least, to neglect your kids or to neglect your husband or to neglect others. Is this not instructive to you? That all these things that you care about matter, but can you set them aside enough to love those right before you? Jesus is showing us compartmentalizing is very Christ-like. There's a way to do this that really benefits those in our lives. Jesus was present in the pain. In His worst moment, He's still able to look for those that He can care for and love. He's not wallowing in self-pity. Listen, He actually did ask for a softer pillow. And God didn't grant it. And so he said, your will be done. And he knew easy wasn't coming. Harder strikes are coming. Followed by a mortal blow. And yet somehow had the wherewithal to care for those right before him. For this last six hours of his life, he's not just hanging there. He's ministering to people. And He's teaching us what it looks like so that we can follow in His example. And you know, we really just, we have no other example of what this looks like. We've never seen this before. A man suffering the worst human pain imaginable and doing it so selflessly. I mean, it just, it it says, verse 25, there were some people that were watching Him. It says, standing by the cross of Jesus... I want us to pay attention to that phrase. Standing by the cross of Jesus. And then it lists five people. Look, you don't just walk away from that experience and it not mark you forever. 
Especially when you see the manner in which he died. Remember the, um, the very calloused Roman centurion? It doesn't mention that in John, but in the other Gospels. This man would have crucified likely hundreds of criminals. Mark 15 says this. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. He saw the manner in which Jesus suffered. And, and, and how can he not compare that to the vileness in which he saw many Roman criminals suffered on the cross? He would have crucified hundreds. I mean, you can read historical accounts of a Roman crucifixion. It was R-rated, to say the least. The profanity, the vulgarness, the things that they're doing and saying, you would not have wanted your children to see this. This is very vulgar. And this Roman centurion saw all people were crucified and did these evil things from the cross. And then look at Christ. And he, concu- he couldn't conclude anything other than this was the Son of God. He didn't know all the theology of the cross. He saw the manner in which Christ suffered. And he made a theological conclusion about Jesus being the Son of God from that. I want us to think about standing by the cross of Jesus, it says, was the disciple whom Jesus loved. We don't actually get John's name. He doesn't give us his name, but we can conclude other ways I won't get into today. This This is John. This is the Apostle John. But he doesn't say his name, but he's there. He's the only male disciple of Christ at the crucifixion and and it affected him deeply think back to uh to John for a moment when he was younger all right we rewind a few years to the first time Jesus found him he's the younger brother of James always kind of glued to the hip of James they're maybe 19 20 21 uh when when they met Jesus Jesus is one of the, or John was one of the twelve, but he was never the leader of the twelve. He was always in the inner circle, but never like Peter, the leader. Even after, the, after Pentecost, when the church is going, it says there was Peter and John. But John was never the leader. It was always Peter. And John was in the background until he outlived all the other disciples and became more influential in the early church once he outlived everyone. But early on, he wasn't. And if you look at the medieval art, even in my office, I have a painting of the Last Supper. Many of us have seen this famous painting. And you look for John. Where's John? He's the blonde-haired, girly, effeminate guy laying on Jesus. All right? Take that image and just erase it. Okay? That That is not who John was. You say, how do we know that he wasn't like that? He was laying upon Christ's it seems maybe he was more affectionate. No, this, this is not the image that we should have. And I can say that it, uh, conclusively because of Mark 3, which he's called a son of thunder. All right, James and John, sons of thunder. You don't get the nickname son of, son of thunder because you're effeminate, sober-minded, self-controlled. You got everything kind of in order. But because you don't. Son of thunder. That's John when he first met Jesus. 
And it, it really illustrates for us, Jesus doesn't pick the cream of the crop. Often the opposite. He picks those with deficiencies and sins and weaknesses. We know even from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. I know that saying that God chose you because you were weak and not attractive and sinful, it doesn't build the self-esteem. It does build God-esteem. It, it glorifies God's grace when He picks sinners. It glorifies God's strength when He picks the weak. And then He manifests His grace and strength in and through our weaknesses. This is how God has always worked. So He picks John. And, and, and again, remember how John at a young age, here's what we see. Luke 9. You all remember on one occasion... Uh, he's in the village of Samaria, and they're not receptive to Jesus' teaching. And he goes, hey, Jesus, I've got an idea. Call down fire from heaven to destroy them. That was John. Mark 10, when Jesus told them, I'm, I will be betrayed and handed over to the Jews. I will be uh, flogged, persecuted, killed. Warns them of his death. What does John say? I mean, it's really shocking. He says, with James, his brother, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Which is like someone telling you, I've got a week to live. And you're like, man, I really like your car. You know, maybe... I mean, that's John. He loved Jesus. He mainly loved himself. This is, this is the... The young John, who something had begun to happen to him by the time he's standing by the cross of Jesus that forever changed him. And this is not to downplay the change that occurred after the resurrection or after Pentecost. I don't say that the cross changed him to diminish all of the change that must have happened in John's life three years with Jesus. But I really believe that as he watched Jesus' death, it affected John. And I say, that, I say that for an actual reason. If you think of the other 12 apostles, they were all there as eyewitnesses to the resurrection. They all experienced Pentecost. They all spent three years with Jesus in his ministry, all 12. But only John was at the cross. And only John's name went from son of thunder to disciple of love. Only John. I, I, I think that's significant. And it is significant because the early church, he began to take on this, uh, this new name, disciple of love, and they often called him uh, the, the, the theologian of love because he wrote so much about love. Most of what we know about love, the doctrine of love, comes from John. And I really believe that is because he saw Christ on the cross and he knew why he was there and he, and he concluded it's all about love. It's all about 
love. John 14 through 16, we get this in-depth theology of the Holy Spirit that John gives us. We studied this a year or so ago. And um, many theologians, you look at Augustine, Calvin, Edwards, they talk about the Holy Spirit. And they say the Holy Spirit is the love that binds the Father and the Son. That the, the glue, the, 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 the love of the Father and the Son for one another is the Holy Spirit. That's how these men talked about the Holy Spirit. Who gives us this Trinitarian doctrine of the Spirit as the Spirit of love? John. I think all of this very much comes back to the fact that he was at the cross of Jesus and concluded it's all about love. He said in 1 John 4.10, This is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Guys, I'm very aware that this book is a result of the Holy Spirit inspiring every word. He is the author. But at the same time, there are human authors. And those human authors had real experiences in which the Holy Spirit used and worked through to write what is here. The fact that John writes so much about love. Why? Why not any of the others? Why John? I I do believe it was because he was at the cross of Jesus. And I think what impacted him most was not the love that Jesus had for the criminal next to him or the Roman centurion or the Jews. It wasn't even the love he had for his mother. I think what impacted John watching Jesus on the cross was that he knew that was love for him. That was for him. John's self-serving pride and vain glory crumbled when he looked up at Jesus' cross and saw love displayed for him. Charles Spurgeon said, pride cannot live beneath the cross. It really can't. Not if you really understand what he was doing hanging there. That's why one famous leader Someone came to him once and said, "How can you not be more famous? You're nationally or you're famous, you're nationally known. How could you not be more prideful?" And he said, "How could anyone be prideful when they've been under the cross of Christ?" It, it humbles you in ways that nothing else can. It ruins you in the best ways. You know, after this moment, John never refers to his own name again. Just the disciple whom Jesus loved. Five times in the Gospel of John, he uses that phrase. If, if he said it once, that's significant. Five times it's yelling at us at this point. We've got to pay attention. The disciple whom Jesus loved. It doesn't, it doesn't say the disciple who loved Jesus. Because John knew and we know there's not enough love in us for Jesus to begin to define us. But there is enough love in Jesus for us to begin to define us. I need to say that 
Again, there's not enough love in us for Jesus to begin to define us, but there is enough love in Jesus for us to begin to define us. Disciple whom Jesus loved. Not disciple who loved Jesus. Disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he, he loved others. He loved other disciples. It wasn't only John. John doesn't have this selfish kind of thing. I'm the only disciple that Jesus loves. But it was a way to, to deflect uh, attention to himself and point it all to Christ. It was, it was a way to say, the value that I have comes from Christ's love placed upon me. In other words, his identity is not connected to something he's done, but something done for him. You ever noticed, um, you know, you read through the epistles later and you read Paul's letters, you read Peter's letters, and they'll say, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Peter, a servant of Christ Jesus. And you think, wow, that's really humble. Sometimes they'll say apostle and servant together, but it's still humble to call themselves a servant, bond servant, a slave. It could be translated. It's a humble thing. Uh, How much more humble to not even put your name and then to define yourself by not something you do. Because even servant is still something you do for Christ. But John removes his own name and says, my identity comes from what he has done for me. I, I submit to you that's more humble. That's more humble. How how did he begin to see himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? And I would say it was because he stood by the cross. He stood by the cross. You do that, it begins to mess with your head. Our culture is trying to mess with their head. Everybody's trying to mess with your mind somehow. But you get near the cross, it messes with with your head in all the right ways begins to reformulate how you think about reality and view people and yourself and things and the world. Every gather, I mean, that's what we, when we get together, that's what we're trying to have happen. I don't know if you notice that ever. You know, you start a service, our short time together during the week, and we sing all hail the power of, Cre- uh, of Jesus' name. I don't, I mean, the world does not sing in that, gathering together every week, saying stuff like that, that, that should begin to affect our minds. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Come to the table and say, this is my only hope of heaven, Christ's body and blood, not the actual elements, but what they represent. To, to confess our sins to the Lord and then remember that we've been forgiven for all of them. All of this is trying to get us near to the cross of Christ. Not literally, but by faith to somehow, even for three seconds, if you could put your mind on Christ and what He was doing on the cross and just believe for just a moment, that was for me. That was for me. Yes, others, but for me. It begins to decenter us and recenter Christ. Why? So that when Christ gives us a command, we immediately obey. That's why we need that to happen to us. 
So that when Christ gives us a command, we will immediately obey that command. It says, standing by the cross of Christ was John, and when he was asked by Jesus to serve, he immediately obeyed. And look what verse 27 says. From that very hour, the disciple took her to his own home. From that very hour, he was ready to obey Christ. Why? I think he was abiding in Christ's love. He was abiding in the love of Christ. Remember what Jesus had taught him and the others and us in John 15, 9? Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Let me read it again. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. John is abiding in the love of Christ. How do we know? He's obeying the commandments. What commandments was he obeying? Jesus saying to care for his mother, provide for her financially, protect her spiritually, care for her, be hospitable. That's the command. Be hospitable. We often forget how many commands that we actually have been given. And we have these weird, dare I say, Christian, uh, kind of Christian ways that we push the commands off or justify not having to obey the commands of Christ. Why we can't or don't have to obey His commands. Give generously and we go, well, I'm barely paying my bills. That one couldn't apply to me. Give thanks in all circumstances. And we, say, and, we, and we go, but not right now. Let there be not a hint of sexual immorality. And we go, well, I'm not doing what they're doing out there. Ephesians 5, the command, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. And we go, yeah, but my husband is a sinner. Not realizing that every other woman who's received that command has a sinful husband as well. Or the command in Proverbs to use the rod because you love your child. And we go, yeah, but I've tried it and it doesn't work. See all these convenient ways we can just work ourselves away from a commandment, a clear command. Or 1 Peter 4, be hospitable without grumbling. And then we're hospitable, we go, see Lord, I did it. And then we complain. You did half of it. You were hospitable, but you did it with grumbling. How hard it is to just take a command and just obey the thing rightly and not justify somehow how it doesn't apply to you. Can we just notice the simplicity of John's faith for a moment? That Jesus just says, hey, this is your mother. Mother's your son. And he takes the very hour, doesn't say another word, just takes her home. All right. For the rest of my life, I'm going to care for her. Because Jesus said to. And that's all that matters. I don't need to argue about my circumstances with Christ. He commanded. Why, why do we not immediately obey? I, I would submit maybe it's two things. One, we're not reading His commands enough to even remember them. Or, we think that some other path is better for us than His commands. We've convinced ourselves, this other thing is better. Well, it's not. 
Jesus in that moment, or John rather, in that moment, viewed Christ's commands as a high privilege, not a burdensome joy kill. And guys, look, I, I know we could look at something like this and be like, man, if Pastor, if Jesus were literally hanging on the cross and said to me, be hospitable, care for your mother, obey the fifth commandment, give generously, don't be impure, or, or uh, don't be impure, be pure, be generous, all these things, I would obey immediately. I submit to you, you would not obey any more than you do now. Why can I say that? Because think about Jesus hanging on the cross in this moment of suffering that looks like defeat. And now we have a Christ who is resurrected, exalted, sitting at the right hand of Father in a place of authority, and we still don't obey. These are heart issues in us. And I, I, I really believe if we'll get near the cross, the heart changes. It does something to us. And, and, and guys, look, this is what discipleship is. He says, disciple whom Jesus loved. Disciple. What is a disciple? A disciple is a learner. John had learned and was continually learning his yoke is easy. His burden is light. There's rest for my soul in His commandments. You've got to learn that and then you've got to keep learning that. Here's, here's something very freeing about discipleship. You never fully arrive until glory Disciple implies not arrived, still in process. That's what it implies that. The word means that. Luke 6, Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be, will be, future tense, like his teacher. What's the future tense? In glory, in heaven, you will be like your teacher. You won't be fully like your teacher now. What is a disciple? I, I, I think, I mean, John uses this word 76 times in the Gospel of John. It's kind of an important theme. And when you begin to put those together, and we've read many of these times where he's used this, you begin to put it together, and I see a fourfold definition of what a disciple is. It is, number one, knowledge of God. You, you take what he's revealed to us about himself, and we read it, and we study it, and we make sure we're right how we're understanding it. And then what do we do? Then we receive it by faith. That's the second step. Knowledge of God received by faith. Not just lodged into our minds or even into our hearts. But a, 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 a receiving by faith. This knowledge that God has revealed to us in scripture. To the point it leads to love and good works. Remember what James said? Chapter 2, faith without works is dead. So if you have a, a type of faith that doesn't result in good works, it's not real faith. And works aren't part of faith, but they are the result of faith. And they demonstrate that our faith is real. So it's knowledge of God received by faith. 
fleshed out with good works, demonstrated through good works, which produces joy, and that joy repeats the process. The joy always comes in this process, and it causes it to repeat. And guys, this is not a mechanical thing. It's not, I'm laying it out in these four steps, but it doesn't work like that. It's, It's a relationship. It's a relationship with Christ. This is what a relationship with Christ looks like. It isn't just learning theology and right doctrine. It's learning a person. Say, how do we know that? Well, Ephesians chapter 4, talking about discipleship, says, that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Do you hear how personal that is? All of the learning is personal. Truth in Jesus. This is how Paul talks in Philippians 3.8. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Not degrees or scholarly academics. Gain Christ. Not just as a Savior, but He says, as my Lord. And not know Him in a way that we're unaffected. But what does it say? To know Him who causes us to lose something in order that you may gain something greater. I count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things Count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Guys, John lost his identity in Christ. In Christ. That's where he lost his identity. In Christ. And in the same place he lost it, he found it. In the same place he lost his identity, he found his identity. Brothers and sisters, when when your life gets swallowed up into Christ, you lose something. And you gain something. The, The type of thing you lose, you realize is no loss. To lose self is, is no loss. To lose sin is no loss. To new, to lose everything wrong about me is no loss. To gain Christ is everything. This is really hard to describe. I mean, picture yourself trying to describe what I'm trying to describe right now. It's hard to comprehend. It's impossible to comprehend. Sometimes you just pray for these things. This is what we pray at the end of our service. Paul prayed in, uh, to the Ephesians, Ephesian church. The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ. Let me, let me end by just asking, where does all this start? Where does this start? And I, I do believe it starts by standing at the foot of the cross. Not literally, but by faith, you, you even for a moment begin to think about what He really did there. 
and why he did it. And listen, I know we're in church, but I know some of you have never done that. You've heard about the cross, you know the details, you get the story. You have never really, really thought about why is he hanging there? Why is he there? Somebody came to me a few weeks ago and said, couldn't he have just taken him? If he's God, why didn't he just take himself off the cross? He didn't. Why? If you figure that out, you've lost everything and you've found everything, right? Everything changes at that moment. It gets very personal. He's hanging there for me. Can you say that? He loves me. Are we even allowed to biblically make it that personal? Can we do that? Paul did. Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Listen. Who loved me and gave Himself for me. Luther said, when I look at myself, I don't see how I could be saved. But when I look to Christ, I don't see how I could be lost. Church, as we come to the table, don't look for yourself here. Look for Christ. Look for His body and His blood. And when you find Christ here, you find your identity. A disciple whom Jesus loved. That's what we need to do when we come to the table. I encourage you, church. Think about Christ as you come here. Worship Christ. Remember all He's done for you. Uh, Those of you who are baptized into the name of Christ have received Christ as we've been discussing. You're a disciple please come to the table. Uh, If you are not uh, going to come to the table today, on that red bulletin uh, is some meaningful prayers that you can pray in this time. Church, let's go to the Lord. Father, thank You for sending Your Son. Your only Son. Jesus, if You had not willingly remained on that cross the full six hours, even unto death, we would have no hope. All of our hope is found in what You did on this cross and three days later, You're rising. And so we just cast ourselves upon it again, Lord. Just the foolishness of the cross. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Lord, we thank You for Christ crucified. We thank You that His blood has cleansed us from all sin. 
Lord, deepen our confidence as we come to the table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.